The following sermon is presented by Pastor Derek Ward of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados. For more information about Harvest, visit our website at www.harvestbarbados.org. As we continue to examine the book of Esther, under the theme, God Behind the Scenes. And I will be highlighting a fundamental attribute about the sovereign God that we serve. We believe that the God of heaven and earth is omnipotent. In other words, uh, he is all-powerful as seen in Job chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. You may want to write that verse down. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's also omnipresent. In other words, he is all-present uh, as depicted in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. And we also believe that God is omniscient. In other words, he is all-knowing. And that is also borne out in uh, the 139th Psalm. In Psalm 139, David underscores the theology of omniscience and reveals that it is not only theological or physical, physiological, he also reveals that it's relational and personal. Notice the personal pronouns he uses. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. Psalm 139, 1 and 2. David doesn't say Lord, you know all things, and you've searched all things. He instead he said, Lord, you know me. He makes it personal. The beginning of Psalm 139 shows us that God's knowledge of all things does not limit his intimate knowledge of us. In other words, this is a God that knows everything. All knowledge is his, yet his knowledge becomes intimate and personal when it comes to his creation. He knows your place in his creation. He knows your thoughts. He knows where you are and where you are going. For the said, David said, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It is within the scope of this foundational truth that we would explore Esther chapter 3, as I speak on the topic this morning, God knows the enemy's plans. God knows the enemy's plans. Esther chapter 3 starts and says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all of the officials who were with him. The chapter opens by introducing a newly appointed ruler in the Persian Empire. Haman is introduced as the Agagite. This is a reference to the tensions between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Now, the Israelites, my friends, and we can do some history this morning, the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, and the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. 
And we know that Jacob and Esau were brothers, not just brothers, but they were twin brothers. Uh, they rumbled and tumbled uh, in the same womb at the same time. And before there was WWE, there was Jacob and there was Esau, for they had a mighty rumble in the womb. And from those days, even till this day, they have been fighting. This, this enmity stems uh, from the time of the Exodus when Israel fought with Amalek in the wilderness. Now, what's happening? Israel was being delivered after 400 years from Egypt. And as they were taken west one day, they were attacked by who they thought would have been the enemy. And the enemy happens to be the Amalekites led by Amalek. And the Bible tells me that Israel defeated them in the wilderness uh, and allowed some of them to get away and go home and tell the story. You don't let the enemy go home because they come back again. And for years after that, centuries after that, the Amal Amalekites were coming back. But here's what we need to start to focus on. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 15, uh, the Bible foretells that the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, so what I'm doing is laying the foundation for where we are going in Esther. The Lord will be at war, Exodus 17 and 15, the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Then we have this guy by the name of Balaam, and everybody knows about Balaam, and the best story that they can tell about Balaam is Balaam and his donkey, and how they had a conversation but let me tell you something was happening in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 7. Uh, the Bible predicts that the Israelite king would be greater than Agag. And Agag is a title given to the Amalekite, oh, sorry, the Amalekites king. Woo! All these ites and tights. Tights. My friends, the, the ancient feud between the Israelites and the Amalekites is reported in 1 Samuel 15, as I just quoted from. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Saul, we heard about him last week, the Benjaminite, he was a son of Kish, and he was the king of the Israelites. And the Bible tells me that Saul was instructed that when he goes to war with the Amalekites, that he was supposed to totally, utterly destroy the Amalekites. Destroy everything. Don't leave anything behind. But the Bible reveals that that instruction was not followed. So Saul allowed his soldiers to bring back not just the king, Agag, but also to bring back the best of the sheep and the oxen and brought them back to the camp of Israel. And the Lord woke up the prophet Samuel, and Samuel was given some serious instructions, and he had to go down to speak to the king. So he pursued early to meet with the king, Saul, and he said, Saul, what have you done? And Saul said, I carried out the instructions of the Lord. The Bible gives us that famous statement where Samuel said, is that the bleating of sheep that I hear? Is it also the looping of the cattle? 
And that is that time that Saul said, well, you know, uh, our people brought back the best of the Amalekites so we can make a sacrifice unto God. My friends, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, you get down to the end, you'll recognize that God is more interested in our obedience than he is interested in our sacrifice. Making sacrifices before God will not appease him. Giving him the best of what we can produce on this earth will not appease him because he has no use of our earthly things. What he wants is our hearts in obedience. So after Saul was confronted because he couldn't keep the sheep quiet, they brought out Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came out, beating his chest and saying, well, <laughs> death has already passed. The time to kill the king of the Amalekites have already passed. The Bible says that Samuel took a sword and he cut Agag into pieces. And that began the downfall of King Saul. It is at that point that the Lord rejected the king. Fast forward some years now, and we are in the book of Esther. The Esther book starts by saying that Haman who was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, is advanced and given authority over everyone in the Persian Empire, as reflected in the first verse. It says that his, his throne was set above all the officials of the Persian Empire. The, the concept of a throne represents the seat of a ruler. The average common man does not sit on a throne, but he sits on a stool. But when a man has a throne, he is a ruler. He is appointed as vizier to King Xerxes. And, you know, we had this, this strange word recently in COVID where a gentleman was, was, was appointed as the czar. And, and everybody was going to figure out, what, what is the czar? What is a czar? Nobody knew what a czar was. So we had to go and research the czar to realize that, that it was just a ruler, a, a person who was set in authority over things. In the time of the Muslims and in the time set in where we are, they were called a vizier. And a vizier was simply a ruler with much authority. This highly respected position had its perks, including the pain of homage by all persons who were required to bow before him. What we will learn about Haman is that he becomes the main antagonist against the Jews in the book of Esther. The tension between the Amalekites and the Jews shouldn't be a secret as we've heard from the historical data I mentioned earlier. And now, Imagine this now, an Amalekite becomes the highest ranking official in the empire after the Ahasuerus or after the king who would have had dominance over the Jews. There's no doubt in my mind that Haman knows his history. 
and the relationship between his people and God's people, the Jews. Could this be his opportunity to take revenge for the divine influence massacre of his people so many years before? Well, he was now being confronted with a Jew named Mordecai, uh, a descendant of Kish, the father of King Saul, who also knew his history. And for the first time in this narrative, God's people stood up for righteousness. For the first time. Now, for us, it's just a third chapter. But if you put it out in the timeline, more than a decade has passed. God's people living in Susa, and now they're standing up for righteousness. Join me as we explore the behavior of Mordecai, and I will encourage you from his behavior. Look at verse 2. It says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But... Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants were at the king's gates, who were at the king's gates, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, because he had told them he was a Jew. And when Mordecai saw that, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's stick a pen there. This is my first encouragement to you, based on the behavior of Mordecai. Refuse to bow to worldly customs. Refuse to bow to worldly customs. This text that I just read does not give any specifics as to the reason behind Mordecai's decision not to bow other than the obvious, which is stated that he was a Jew. No self-respecting Benjaminite, no self-respecting Jew would show reverence to a descendant of the Amalekites. After all, you are my enemy and I'm de de determined to be better than you are. Furthermore, Jews would only bow to God as we see in Exodus chapter 20. And when one refuses to bow, my friends, they stand out. They are easily noticed. Uh, picture the three Hebrew boys in a whole mess of all these guys in Babylon, and everybody bows, and three guys are standing up. They will stand out. When we refuse to bow to the world, when we refuse to bow to the things that we are experiencing, we also will stand out. When we stand out, it will invite others to come at us. Watch and see how they come at us. Number one, they caution you. They give you warning. Look at what happens in the text that says, why do you transgress the king's command? Not to use a very powerful word, transgress. Transgress. To transgress is to know what to do and then do something different. 
To be deceived is that you don't really know what to do, but you don't know what you heard. But it means that they knew that Mordecai understood the law, that he understood that he was supposed to bow, and he chose not to. He was a transgressor. So they cautioned him. How many times that you've been in your workplace or someplace else, and you decide that you were not going to do a particular thing, and people caution you, why are you so blatant to disrespect the orders of the boss? The second thing that they will do, they caution you, the second thing they will do is that they will start to pester you. Right here in the text, it says uh, uh, they spoke to him day after day. In other words, it was not just one time they spoke to him. They went to him over and over and over again, saying, listen, Mordecai, you need to bow to Haman. The king instructed that. So they caution you, they pester you. And if you are brave enough not to bow even still, this is the third thing that they will do. They will expose you to others so that you can be tested. Right here in the text, they said that they went and they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. They were not testing to see if the words of the king would stand. Because they knew that the king's words would have to stand, but they were testing to see, are you really this resilient? Are you really this brave to stand up not only against Haman, but the word of the king? Are you really going to continue to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, even though we are telling you to denounce him? Are you going to prove to us that you're willing to die over giving up or denying your, your Lord? People will caution you. They will pester you. Then they will complain and expose you. Regardless of what is transpiring, the Jews made a stand. This Jew made a stand. He refused to bow. When we bow before someone, when we bow before something, we are submitting to that thing and its standard. When we as Christians bow and we do what the world wants to do, we are submitting and calling the world now our God, and our God sits in silence, wondering what has happened to his people. We must refuse to bow before worldly. We today are living in a world that is trying to impose upon us cultures that are counter-spiritual. We've already seen in the U.S. the removal of prayers and reading of the Bibles in schools. And we've seen the effect that I've had with so many school shootings and so many things happen in schools. And now people are saying, let us call on the name of God again. But you, you didn't want to hear God when, when you hadn't. You removed God from your schools and now you're dealing with the fallout of it. We've seen right here in this country the abandonment of religious education in secondary school after third form. After you have reached your third form, you know, going to secondary school, 
religious education is no longer an option on the books. And I'm reliably told by a teacher that if one wants to pursue religious education at CXC, they will have to do it privately because the schools will not entertain that anymore. It is necessary until you are 13, and after that, bow before the systems of the world. The push for acceptance of alternative lifestyles and the, limit, the, the labeling of what we say as hate speech is also causing us to, 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 to be confronted with the request to bow to the world system. This word that we have been preaching for centuries upon centuries is now considered hate speech because we say that sin is sin. That is an effort of the world to make us bow to worldly custom. The efforts to silence the church from speaking out against racism, and in particular the Black Lives Matter campaign, is an effort to make us bow to worldly systems. However, we are comforted by the words of James that say that we are supposed to stand up for the widows and the fatherless and the marginalized and those people. So when we do that, we are doing it based on scripture. We must refuse to bow to worldly customs. We must refuse to bow to the voice of the enemy when his distractions come when they come to prevent us from engaging in spiritual disciplines. We must refuse to bow when it is portrayed that social events and parties, barbershops, saloons, and even rum shops are safe to gather at while the church is being portrayed as the most dangerous place to be in COVID situations. You don't get sick at protests with thousands of people but you get sick in church with 15 people around you. Now that's not to say to come to church and to take things uh, uh, for granted. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that they're not only speaking uh, to where you gather, but they are isolating the church. And I just saw a recent report to say that church is now in the very top, most dangerous places. God created us to live in community, but they want the church to live in isolation. We must refuse to bow. The message of God cannot and should not be caged. But that would only happen when we refuse to bow. When buildings are closed and corporate worship is forbidden, those who refuse to bow and give in will survive the threat of the enemy and will be victorious in the face of great opposition. I'm not saying that we have to come to church to make it. I'm saying that we have to engage Christ to make it. But we know very well that if the church buildings are closed, there are some people who will not engage in spiritual discipline. I'm sure none of them are here at Harvest, but there are some people that only read their Bibles on Sunday mornings when the preacher says, let's turn to. Here's why we should refuse to bow to worldly customs. God knows the enemy's plans. 
His plans, the enemy's plans, are to suppress, oppress, and possess you. But our God knows his plans and will deliver you, as we will see in this wonderful narrative that we are studying. I challenge you to make a public declaration today and say to yourself in the, the hearing of others, I will refuse to bow to worldly customs. Let your ears hear your mouth declare this. Because when your ears hear it, it registers in the deepest parts of your brain and you think it is something that you have to do. So that's my first challenge, and it's based on the behavior of Mordecai. Refuse to bow to worldly customs. Here's the second application. During these times of oppression, have confidence in the omniscient God. Now, I, I wish you would write this down because the, these words are words that will come back over and over in your Christian world, a word like omniscient. You see, the, the scripture cautions us in John chapter 16 and verse 33 that in the world you will have tribulation. That's in the world. You will have tribulation. From the moment you respond to the call of God, you became a target for the enemy of your soul. In other words, you will be sought out and troubled by the devil. Nevertheless, I wish to encourage you to have confidence in the omniscient God. The word omniscient, which is, uh, have been a part of the English language uh, since the beginning of the 17th century, it brings together two Latin root words. Uh, the first prefix, or the prefix is omni, which means all. And the second one is uh, that. It is Latin. That. Sire. And it means to know. It's by that we get the English word omniscient, which means God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Watch how it unfolds for Mordecai and the children of Israel living in the Persian Empire during the 5th century B.C. See, picking up at verse 5, and the Bible says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Not just Mordecai want, want them all. So he decided that he was going to lay hands on all the people of Israel throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman was enraged. People sometimes want to be revered as God. Haman was being revered as God. He felt like people are bowing before me. They're, they're paying homage. They're, they're respecting me. They're worshiping me. That's a dangerous place to be when other people start to bow before you. Saw a clip of Michael Jackson many years ago, and Michael Jackson came out on the stage, and the, 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 the arena was packed with people, and as Michael Jackson graced, the, the people start to faint and, and scream out, Michael, Michael, and people were fainting. Can a man go home after that and be normal? Can you be normal after people behave that way around you? Like, oh, he, he, he was in God territory now. 
People were falling before him. They were brought, they had to be in ambulance to carry out people because they, they missed the show, because they passed out at the sight of Michael. Here we have Haman who was getting a similar reaction. I don't know if at the same level, but people were saying, oh, Haman, greatest in the kingdom after Ahasuerus, and all these things they would say. And here's one man wouldn't bow. He was enraged. Haman is pictured as a proud person who constantly desired human praise. In short, he was power hungry. That's going to come out in the text, man. You need to read this text as, a, as one story. It needs to flow for you. Here are a few questions to consider. Is he enraged simply because one man won't bow? One man? Is he enraged because of the thousand-year-old rivalry between his people, the Amalekites, and God's people, the Israelites? Is he enraged because he believes that Mordecai's disregard for his position would result in community spread? I like that word. It would result in a community spread, thus causing him to lose respect on a wider scale. All of these would simply be speculations uh, which we should stay away from. But what we can say is that Mordecai's refusal to bow gave him the opportunity to reveal his hatred of the Jews by setting out to destroy them. Don't just destroy him and Mordecai. Let's destroy them all. The following verses of this chapter outlines the second deadly plot of the narrative. Anybody remember the first deadly plot? Let me see how we're listening. The first deadly plot in the book of Esther was the plot to kill the king, to assassinate the king by his two eunuchs. Mordecai was the man who spoiled the, the plot. But unlike the first deadly plot, this plot to kill the Jews was very detailed and meticulous. We can see that it has taken place some four to five years after Esther was chosen to be the queen. How do I get that? It says in the, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So if you're following the timeline, if you're creating a timeline, you realize that now Esther was already queen four to five years. What is also evident is that the Jews most likely were getting ready to celebrate the Passover because it was in the first month, the month called Nisan. And Nisan, my friends, corresponds with the month of March in our calendar. So their year started around March for us. For us. Not only was it so meticulous to say when it would start, uh, but it also says that the process continued for 12 months, culminating in the month of Adar or February the next year. So for 12 months, Haman was plotting against Mordecai and the Jews. Look at the Bible again to see what's happening. Verse 7, it says, In the first month, Adar, Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, P-U-R, per. Casting per is similar the casting lots. What's a purr? Anybody knows what's a purr? No, a purr was simply, uh, it could have been pebbles, it could have been sticks, it could have been any sort of object that they would use uh, and they would 
pull short straws or they would throw objects on the ground like we saw in the book of Jonah and they'll do all these things. People believe that this was a way to communicate with a God. You need to take note of this act of casting, casting the pearl because this is going to come back later in the story and be very significant. Their purpose of casting lots was determined which would be a favorable day to execute Haman. They wanted to find out which was the day. A period. One speculated concerning a way the month could have been determined that they, they, they put all the months on a, a, a sheet and they, they had all the months laid out and they would cast the, the, the pearl on the sheet and it would have to land on a particular month. But it were 12 months, so how do we deal with that? Let me tell you how they dealt with it. In order for them to have a divine revelation of what God was saying to them, the pearl had to land on the same month for three consecutive times. So every time they throw and it, it land on a different month, they have to start over because they have to get three consecutive times it fell on the particular month. And for 12 months, that's all they did. They cast their loss. They cast the purr. Eventually, it took them 12 years, eventually it fell on Adar, the month of Adar. And they knew that the execution would take place in the month of Adar. How did they get that? That's in verse 13 of the text, my friends. So if you look at the text, it says, Let's, uh, letters were sent by Cyrus to all the king's provinces with the instructions to kill, to, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So now the date was set. Having determined the date to execute the plot, Haman then approaches the king. My friends, take note of this. There are people who are plotting against you, and they're doing it quietly until they have the plot secure. They know the whole plan. Then they will go and say, this is what we should do, and this is how we should do it. Haman then go to the king hastily to say, let's kill the Jews. He went with a really meticulous plan. So after 12 months of throwing the purr, then Haman goes to the king. This to the king. We have a situation. We need to fix a situation in the empire. Notice that neither Mordecai nor Esther is mentioned again in this chapter after the sixth verse. Everything else is given towards a plot to kill them. You don't even want to hear what you have to say. We're just going to kill you. This antagonist named Haman is very crafty with the way he speaks to the king. He first makes a racist statement to the king. How do I know it's a racist statement? <laughs> I just felt racism in the statement. He says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. He didn't even mention the people's name. This is a vague 
reference to the Jews. Certain people scattered. Who, Persian people were scattered. That's where they live. The Israelites were the ones who were scattered across the Persian Empire because that was not their home. They were in captivity. They were in captivity so long they had a sense of freedom. They could walk around and engage in all the activities in the marketplace and what's not. But they were scattered and dispersed. What he said to the king. Secondly, he starts to get deep now to say, is it Jews? But he doesn't say it, you know. He doesn't at once say it's Jews. He says, these people, they have laws that are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. This man is laying it out slow and easy. He's building up for the king. Verse 9 is where the plot turns deadly. Look at verse 9 with me and see how the, the plot turns deadly. He says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they will be destroyed. What's going on here? We need to understand what a decree is. You know, we, we listen to people in church and people say, they get up and admit some, some proclamations, I declare and I decree. I declare and I decree this, and I declare and I decree this. You've heard that in church already? I declare and I decree. People need to be careful what they declare and decree. Because a decree was a command from the king that could not be reversed. Some people are decreeing things that they cannot guarantee. So when people make a decree, an order, or command, it is usually irreversible. This particular decree that Haman was asking the king to make was a decree to commit genocide. You saw that in the text? The word isn't there, but the concept is there. He said, let's destroy them all. The term genocide simply means to destroy all of a particular people, or at least most of them. Verse 13 outlines the nature of the genocide. He says, we will destroy, we will kill, and annihilate the Jews. Young and old, that's the men they're talking about. Then the women and the children, we will take their spoils and we will just splurge them away. Destroy them. Couldn't they have just used one word, just kill them? I feel, I feel one word is enough. Go kill them would be sufficient. But it said destroy. To destroy is to discriminate or decimate. It's to overthrow, it's to exterminate. That is, it's pretending to being in total ruin. To kill is to put a creature to death, usually by intention. You intend to get rid of them. It's not like it was an accident. So you, you want to destroy, you want to kill, and then finally, annihilate. Uh, annihilate. Annihilate. Uh, I have to use that app more. And, and I, uh, uh, somebody give her a mic. <laughs> annihilate. I got it right. Jeez, hon. Too many words. And to annihilate is to wipe out any memory of 
You're gone. We didn't just destroy, we didn't just kill, we wiped you out. Wiped you out. Haman was so determined to execute this deadly plot that he goes on to do something else. He offers a bribe to the king. Right here in the text, he says in verse 9, I will pay 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was about 75 pounds. So you take 75, multiply it by 10,000, and you will know how much pounds of silver that Naaman was about to give. So what he says, I will take 10,000 talents. I will give it into the hands of the men who take care of the king's treasury so that the king can benefit from it. This is bribery at the highest level. Bribery is the act, my friends, of giving someone an authority money or a valuable in exchange for their use of authority for your benefit. There are people who finance projects because later on, I need you to help me out. There are people who come and they give you some money because they know that you have a position of authority because when it is time for you to act, you will act in their favor because you line their pockets. All that Haman was doing saying, listen, king, I'm going to give 10,000 talents towards this venture. Just sign the decree and we'll be good. Question is that we must ponder is why would he make such an offer? Commentators posited that the treasury of the empire was running low on reserves because of their lavish living. Also, do not mention in this book, King Xerxes had recently waged war against the Greeks and war was a very expensive venture. So just in case the king was to state that there wasn't enough money in the treasury and that the plan could not be executed, this proud enemy of God's people was willing to pay for the execution of the Jews. What can we say about the king in this case? Because the Bible says that the king turned around and gave Mordecai, gave Haman his signet ring and says, go and do it. This king was too readily maneuvered by others. We see it so many times already in this text. If it pleases the king. What should we do with Vashti? If it pleases the king, do this. What should we do? If it pleases the king. If it pleases the king. Everybody said, if it pleases the king, because they were speaking into a part of the king that loved to be pleased. If it pleased the king. The king responds by giving his authority to Haman. And by you know where this happened before? This happened in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 41, where the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, gave his signet ring to Joseph to make decisions as it pertains to storing wheat. The signet ring represents the ultimate authority of the king. And when the king takes his ring off and gives it to anybody else, he's given them the authority of the king. He tells Haman, you know what? Take the money. See, the money is yours. What that means is take the money and use it as you so desire. Use the money to execute the plan. So pleased with themselves, King and Haman, the Bible says that they sat down 
to have a drink. Top leads to the plan. Let's drink about that. This is now the third feast, the fourth feast in the book. What is so comforting here is that despite the opposition, the plan, oppression of the Jews, God knew the plans and he was actively working behind the scenes. I'm here today to tell you that even when you are experiencing times of oppression, whether it's at home, in the workplace, or in society in general, you can have confidence in the all-knowing, the omniscient God. Here are some scriptures for us to ponder on. Matthew tells us in Matthew 24 and 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father alone. He knows all things. Matthew 6, 31 and 32 says, Do not worry what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Ezekiel chapter 11 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus saith the Lord, so you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. Psalm 69 and verse 5 says, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. All these scriptures are saying that God knows. I don't particularly like Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, and you should probably learn this one. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. We have a God that knows all things. My encouragement today is to have confidence in him. The Bible is bursting with evidence that God knows everything and nothing takes him by surprise. God doesn't go like, wow, really? Nothing takes him by surprise. So when you are experiencing oppression, regardless of the source, have confidence in the omniscient God. This morning we were singing a song that says, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. David said, uh, he anointeth my head with oil, my cup overflows. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even when people are trying to oppress you, when they're trying to keep you down and hold you back, God has a way of raising you up uh, and giving you a hallelujah. Have confidence in the all-knowing God. There are people who I hear complain all the time, and they say, God can't be with me because I'm going through terrible times. I'm telling you, God is always with you, and he knows what you're going through. But like Job, he can say that when I have come out of this, I will come out as gold because I have confidence in the all-knowing God. As I close today, I want to comfort you with the news that not only God knows the enemy's plans, but there are those around you who have your back. The last nine words of this chapter states, and I quote, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the reassuring evidence that many of the citizens did not share Haman's intense hatred of the Jews. They were like, what? What's going on? Why are they trying to kill the Jews? As this series continues to unfold, my prayer for you is that you would be able to see the fingerprint of God in every aspect of your life. 
is for you to be fully aware of God working behind the scenes. And it all starts by having confidence in the omniscient God. If you're going through a situation at this time and you feel that you're under attack, whether it's in your relationships, your finances, your health, or whatever, you fill in the blank, you can be aware that God knows the enemy's plans. If you, on the other hand, is the source of someone's heartache, if you are the source of another person's oppression, I want to also caution you that God knows the plans. If you think you can just sit with the king and have a drink because you are excited about the downfall of somebody else, God knows the plans. Thanks for listening to this message by Derek Ward, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados, located on Goodland Road, St. Michael. Check us out online at www.harvestbarbados.org or on any of our social media platforms at Harvest Barbados. If you're looking for a church family to call home, we invite you to join us this and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for our high-impact service where we lift high the name of Jesus in worship and proclaim the authority of God's Word without apology. Until next time, we just want you to know that you are loved.